Today we're taking up the subject of reasons we don't believe. The impetus for this series is coming out of the idea of multiply and the thought of you going and talking about Jesus might then create questions from the people to whom you're talking to. Questions like, is the Bible really trustworthy? If God is good, then why is there evil in the world? And the question that we deal with today, how can Jesus be the only way? These questions are really important because when someone asks you those questions, you need to be prepared to know how to answer. And yet for some of us, we're timid in sharing the gospel, we're reluctant to open our mouth about the truth of the Christian faith because of the fear that we might be asked those questions. So this morning I have on my heart two audiences. First, those who are Christians, followers of Jesus, who need to know how to be equipped to give good answers in the world. And then secondly, for those of you who are not yet a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus, this may be a very critical and important question. And I hope to help you as you begin your, or continue rather, your exploration of faith. I want to try and answer this question. How can Jesus be the only way? What I want to do today is to walk through Romans chapter 3. That's our primary text. But before we get into that passage, I want to set the framework from a cultural standpoint. We're asking this question in the midst of a culture where most people believe certain things. And then I want to help you understand the problem of humanity, how the Bible speaks to that problem. And then third and finally, help you understand how the solution to our problem is found only in the person and work of Jesus. So, cultural context. This question of how can Jesus be the only way is set in the middle of an environment, a culture, that has a dominant worldview to it. If you're in high school, you'll sense this as you talk to friends over lunch. If you're in college, you'll, you'll hear this in a classroom or as you engage with people in your sorority or your fraternity. In the marketplace, as you start to talk about what it means to believe and the fact that you're a Christian, you're, you're gonna run into this question. In fact, it may sound something like this. How can there be just one true faith? It's arrogant, frankly, to say your religion is superior and then to try and convert everyone else to it. Surely all religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Now, my guess is you've probably heard this before. It's a very common thought within our present-day culture. Or, or maybe someone even connects this idea of Jesus being the only way to a bigger issue like even world peace. For instance, someone might say, religious exclusivity is just narrow and it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, then the world will never know peace. You see, what's that issue here? What the core issue is, is this concept called the exclusivity of Christ. The belief 
according to the Christian faith, that Jesus is the only way for people to be right with God. This is not an inference of a biblical principle, but it is rather something that Jesus explicitly said. In fact, you heard it in the second scripture reading. John 14, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If that statement is true, that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the only way, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, then all other faith systems are not just wrong. They're actually spiritually deceptive. That's the rub. In fact, if it's true that Jesus is the only way, then these other faith systems are by default leading people to believe in something that will not only not cause them to be truly reconciled with God, they won't love God in the right way, but there's even more. The Bible talks about a coming judgment and eternal destinies of heaven and hell. And the exclusivity of Christ means that what a person does with Jesus' claim that he is the only way, the only truth, and no one comes to the Father except by him makes a difference for one's eternal destiny. So that's the issue. It's a really big deal. The reason that it's set in our particular context, in our culture, and the reason why that phrase, that statement, the exclusivity of Christ strikes some as odd is because there is a prevailing worldview or a prevailing ethic in our culture that is contrary to the idea of the exclusivity of Christ. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, identifies several cultural axioms, things that people believe in our world. In other words, this is what most non-Christians believe about what Christians believe. It's five things. Number one, most people in our culture believe that all major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. All roads sort of lead to Christ. All, all roads rather lead to God. Second, every religion sees part of the same spiritual truth, but nobody sees the whole truth. I remember in high school when we had a person come into our Bible class who was not a Christian, and they explained that Christianity sees just one aspect of God like a man feeling an elephant, just feels his legs blindfolded. He thinks that God is a, like a big tree. Whereas another person, different religion, blindfolded, feeling an elephant, feels his side and thinks that God is like a wall. Another feels his, his trunk and thinks that God is like a rope or a, a snake. And the person's point was this, that every religion just sees a different aspect of God, but they're all talking about the same God. You need to know that's a dominant view of religion in our culture. Here's another one. Religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be the truth. In other words, because of the home you were raised, because of the place you were born, because of the culture in which you have been brought up, that's why you believe what you believe. Fourth, it's arrogant to insist that your religion is right and to convert others to it. And number five, religion is a private, spiritual matter. 
Friends, you need to know that these five axioms are really the dominant worldview of the world in which you live. Behind the scenes of people that you talk with about the gospel are elements of each of these particular axioms, and it won't be long if you start to have a conversation with someone that some of these issues will arise. Or if you are astute and listen to media, you'll be able to see these beliefs that are, these beliefs that are posited. It's important that you understand these. Because it helps you to understand how to communicate the gospel in a way that is winsome and clear. But it's also important for you to realize, realize that the claim that Christianity is exclusive is not only true, but it's not rare. In fact, each of those axioms that I just read to you are exclusive claims in and of themselves. So it isn't just that Christianity is exclusive, for that matter, Every religion has exclusive beliefs. Whether it's a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or an agnostic or even atheist, they are all exclusive in what they believe. And the reason is frankly surprisingly simple, that in order for something to be true, something also then must be false. Or as Walter Martin in his book, The Kingdom of Cults, says, truth by definition is exclusive. If truth were all-inclusive, nothing would be false. So as we think about how to engage our cultures, we think about how to talk with people about the good news of the gospel, it's important to understand this cultural context in which we live. So you're not surprised when you face it, and so you also know how to answer it. Every culture has beliefs, beliefs that are underneath the surface, beliefs that inform how one lives. See, the issue is not if a person believes, the question is what is it that they actually believe? doesn't matter where you are today on your spiritual journey. Every single person hearing this message believes. It's just a matter of what they believe. No matter if you're young or old, if you're considered educated or uneducated, call yourself a skeptic, call yourself a believer. We all live out of some belief system. And human beings, whether we know it or not, there is this narrative connected to us that informs what we should do and what we should not do. And underneath all of this are a set of beliefs. So that's the cultural context in which this question, how can Jesus be the only way, is asked. Now, what is the problem for humanity? What is our challenge? Because what you define as the challenge then determines what solution you would employ. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, is one of the clearest passages in the Bible as to the problem of humanity and the solution that is offered to us through the person and work of Jesus. Martin Luther described this text as the heart of the entire New Testament. As it relates to the problem with humanity, the most critical verses are verse 21 and verse 23. Verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And then skip ahead to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me help you understand how the Bible understands humanity. First and foremost, the Bible tells us that there is something wrong with the world. 
This isn't just true because of what the Bible says. This is true based upon your own observation. Because while there are wonderful elements of beauty and peace and love in the world, there are things like a beautiful sunrise and the joy of waking up when you've lost an hour of sleep. (laughs) And yet, beauty fades. Love can be violated. Peace is shattered. Death is a part of the equation of humanity. Cancer, natural disasters, broken relationships, and even the presence of guilt in the world signals that there is something wrong. In fact, one of the best ways to be able to open a conversation with someone about spiritual truths is simply to acknowledge something that you both could agree upon, namely, something is wrong with the world. The second thing the Bible tells us is that God is revealing both what he is like and what we are like. The entire book of Romans has this as its aim. The Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans in order to reveal both who God is and who we are. Romans 1 tells us that God can be seen in, by virtue of his creative acts in creation. Whether it's the beautiful, majestic landscape, crisp, clean, and beautiful air, blue skies, mountains, the birth of a baby, or just the love that is felt between friends and between husband and wife and family. It points that there's something else beyond just our own human existence. But what's more, the Bible not only tells us that God exists, but also it identifies that there's something wrong with us such that we suppress the truth about God that should be obvious. Look at Romans 3 and verse 23. The Bible tells us that every human is a sinner. It says, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you were to go to chapter 3 and verse 10, you'd hear these words, none is righteous, no, not one. What does this mean? It means that at one level, we've all violated God's commands in one way or another. Lying, stealing, cheating on one's spouse, deceptive words, conflict that emerges, The point is simple, that every human being has broken God's rules. And this is not only true by virtue of our experience, but it's also true by our very nature. It's hardwired into the very fabric of our humanity. No one needed to teach you when you were growing up how to say the word mine and to say it with sinfulness. We do bad things naturally. And then there's even another layer to this. The Bible identifies that God's glory, this glory from which we fell, is the most worthy and beautiful reality in all of the universe, and that no one deserves to be worshipped like God because no one is like him. And so therefore, sin is not only doing the wrong things, but listen carefully, sin also is ascribing worth to things that should only be ascribed to God. Soren Kierkegaard said this, human beings were made to love God supremely, center their lives on him above anything else, and build their very identities on him. Anything other than this is sin. In other words, the problem with sin in humanity is not just doing bad things. It's that we take good things and make them God things. 
We take children and wrap our identities around them. We take our careers and get our identity from them. We, we take the very good gifts that God gives us and we make them ultimate things. That's, the Bible describes that's the problem with humanity. It tells us that we've fallen short of God's glory, that God is holy and we're not. He's perfect and we've sinned. What God is, we aren't. And since he's the creator of the universe, this puts us in a very precarious, even eternally dangerous position. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. That Paul expands on this effect of sin in the world, saying that sin has a penalty. The word wage is taken from the kind of language used to describe sternly earned payment that was given to soldiers as a result of battle. The idea is that sin creates a debt, and the cost of that debt is death. And then finally, this text tells us that the law doesn't produce righteousness. So the Bible paints a fairly dark picture of humanity One that is accurate, one that describes even our own experience as we've dealt with ourselves and as we dealt with one another. But then the text says that the law does not produce righteousness. It says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What does this mean? It means that so often human beings, in their attempt to make themselves righteous, the first place they go is to try and do things in and of themselves in order to balance the scales of justice. And what this text tells us is that a human being can never do enough. That righteousness comes apart from the works of the law. So not only can you not do enough, but here's the other thing. Even if you could do enough, the very things that you would do would be stained by your own sinfulness because once you did them, you'd be proud that you did them and you would thereby be sinful again. Over a vacation, I read the short story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's the fictional account of a man who develops a potion that turns him from a good and kind man named Jekyll into a horrible and evil man named Hyde. The character Jekyll loves the control and the freedom that it gives him, that he can become evil and good whenever he wants, but it isn't long until Mr. Hyde, this hideous part of him, becomes more violent and worse. In fact, at one point, he even kills a man as Hyde, and he resolves as Jekyll to never go back to Hyde again, and so he refuses to give in to his dark side and to drink the potion anymore. And for a while, he's successful. Until one day, while sitting in a park, He's watching people in his Mr. Dr. Jekyll condition, and he begins to compare himself to others. It says, I smile, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And while Dr. Jekyll sits on that park bench comparing himself to others, something suddenly happens. He changes, without the potion, into Edward Hyde. And what had happened is that his pride had become his potion. And what Stevenson is wrestling with is this reality of the human condition that lurks inside every human being, that within every Dr. Jekyll there is a Mr. Hyde. 
Friends, this is how Christianity diagnoses the human condition. It identifies that something is wrong with the world. Just look around you, something is wrong. The problem, according to the Bible, is sin. The effect is death, both physical and eternal. The result is that humanity is in trouble and we cannot get ourselves out of the mess of our own making. And understanding this problem as identified in the Bible and by virtue of our own experience points us then towards a solution. We need something or better someone to rescue us from our hopeless and helpless position. Al Mohler says this, if all we needed was a teacher of enlightenment, Buddha would do. If all we needed was a collection of gods for every occasion, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self, Oprah will do. But if we need a savior, only Jesus will do. That's the difference. Now let me show you why that's true. How can Jesus be the only way? Why is Jesus the only way? The Bible identifies that the only solution for people to be made right with God is Jesus. He's the only way that people are forgiven of their sins. He's the only way that people are saved from eternal judgment. And in order to understand how that works and why that is true in reference to Jesus, you have to understand four key phrases in Romans chapter three. Here's the first one, look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That, friends, is the heart of the gospel message. It identifies that the righteousness of God, that which was lost in our sinfulness, can be given to sinful people apart from the law and that it comes by virtue of faith and belief in Jesus Christ. So the Christian faith, unlike all other faiths, requires that you place your full confidence and all your trust in someone else and that someone else is, of course, Jesus. The righteousness that was lost because of the sinfulness of mankind can be restored, but it can't be restored by virtue of the works that we accomplish. It only happens by believing in Jesus. Jesus is the only way because no one else accomplished what he did. No one else rose from the dead. A few weeks from now in Easter, we'll celebrate the resurrection. It changed absolutely everything. Hope was restored because Christ was alive. And you need to know that one of the reasons you need to invite people to come on Easter Sunday is because for one Sunday out of the year, maybe another one like Christmas, but especially on Easter, it's like there's a little crack in the cultural worldview and people will actually consider the truth. Maybe he really is alive and maybe the Bible is really true and maybe I'm really a sinner and maybe I really need a savior. And that little window, that little sliver is an incredible opportunity to platform the gospel. So let's not miss the opportunity that is coming to us in a few weeks. The second phrase is in verse 24. It says this, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. So here we find two key words that are added into the mix, the words grace and the word justification. 
Justification means to be declared righteous. It's a kind of a legal term that means that your record, whatever it is, has been cleansed, been wiped clean, or been expunged. You also might be helped to think about justification not only as a a legal moment in terms of someone's record being wiped clean, but maybe you could also think of it this way, as the moment when an adoptive child has been legally transferred from its birth parents to its adoptive parents. And in that moment, there's a new identity. To be justified means that God grants you a new relationship with him, a new identity based upon the finished work of Jesus. The miracle, then, of Christianity is the fact that God grants this to people as a gift. That's why it's called grace. He graces people with righteousness. He gives them forgiveness. He gives them an identity that doesn't belong to them and one that they could have never earned, which is why the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. But how? How can God do that? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now here we have another big word, but an important word to understand. The word propitiation means satisfaction or appeasement. The Bible tells us that Jesus was the only way that the scales of divine justice could be balanced. Our works couldn't balance them. Our activities couldn't balance them. Our religious Activities can't balance the scales. The only way the scales of divine justice can be balanced is by the appeasement that comes through Christ. Let me help you understand why this is true. Think of the word forgiveness. The word forgiveness for many of us simply means that we absolve someone from a debt. They owe us something and we have them not pay us back. True. But what you need to know is there's, the other, there's another side of forgiveness, that by not requiring them to pay the debt, it doesn't mean that the debt isn't paid. It just means that they didn't pay it. But instead, the person who absolves someone of the debt chooses to pay the debt themselves. The debt is still paid. It's just paid by the person to whom it is owed. Well, I built a house in Michigan I saw this very clearly. Our builder used to say, well, somebody pays. And I understand what he means. It means that when the house was built, there was nothing that was free. Somebody paid for that window. And when that window was broken, when it was installed and it needed to be fixed, either he paid for it, I paid for it, or the subcontractor paid for it, but somebody was gonna pay for it. It doesn't just go unpaid. In order for that to be fixed, it has to be reckoned in terms of somebody paying. I'll give you another example. In a family context, suppose that your um, son or daughter is backing your car out of the garage and they get too close to the side of the garage and they clip the rear view mirror on on the outside, the exterior mirror. They come in and say, oh, dad, I I got too close. I broke the mirror. And as a good dad, you say, oh, that's okay. Your mom's done it a hundred (laughs) times. Now you say, that's okay. Um, I'm not going to make you pay for it. Well, the result is that that mirror isn't going to fix itself. And when a dad says, you don't have to pay for it, listen, kids, students, when your parents say, you don't have to pay for it, it means that your parents are going to pay for it because someone's going to pay for it. You tracking with me? Parents? 
I mean, it should be like, yes, finally, someone said this, right? So it means that the debt has to be paid. So you might say, well, why can't God just forgive us? The answer is, is because no one just forgives. Forgiveness means that somebody bears the cost of not making the wrongdoer pay for it. So the cross was necessary because of the cosmic debt of sin. There was a debt to be paid, and God paid it. There was a penalty to be borne, and God himself bore it. Finally, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, this is an important verse. This text tells us that there is a much bigger plan and an issue at stake here, that the plan is ultimately not about human beings, that the story of the gospel is the way in which God is showing the world what real righteousness is like, that by redeeming people this way, God is not being narrow, no, rather he is demonstrating what selfless, humble righteousness is all about. And yet you might wonder, well, why does Jesus have to die? This verse helps us understand this. It says that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the cross is the intersection of God's justice and our justification. Where God's justice and our justification meet, they meet at the cross. If God simply forgave sin without the payment, he would cease to be just. In the same way that a judge in Marion County has to issue penalties, a judge has to judge. If she stops sentencing, we have no justice, and without justice, we have no society. A judge must judge. That's what they're called to do. It's required, and therefore, in God's holiness, without payment for sin, God cannot be just. Therefore, the only solution to this problem The only solution to the brokenness of the world, the holiness of God, the only solution to balance the scales of divine justice, the only solution for making people righteous, for declaring them to be forgiven, is that God pays the debt himself. The second member of the triune Godhead, out of great love for the glory of God and for humanity, becomes a man. He humbles himself, becoming an infant, growing He lives a sinless life. He submits himself to death, the very punishment he didn't deserve. And for what purpose did he do this? The sinless son of God does this so that his death could be applied to anyone who would look to that death and say, I believe in him. And in so doing, God brings them into his family, causes them to be forgiven, reconciles them to himself, wipes away the slate of their indebtedness, and he puts it all on Christ. And the only reason it works is because there's nobody like Jesus. In that moment, God is both just and justifier. The scales of justice are balanced. God grants righteousness to rebels. He gives them a forgiveness they didn't deserve and could have never earned. And the only way that is even possible is because of the work of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could have done that. 
No one else is the God-man. No one else lived without sin. No one else died for others. No one else was raised from the dead. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why no one comes to the Father except through him, because there is no one like him. And once you believe this, it changes everything. Here's what Tim Keller says. In Christ, I could know I was accepted by grace, not only despite my flaws, but because I was willing to admit them. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Why? Because everything about your life, everything, everything about your future, everything, everything about your identity, everything is centered in the singular person of Jesus Christ. Without him, you have nothing. But with him, because he interceded, because he entered the intersection between God's justice and your justification, because of him, the Bible says, You're a new creature. The old you is gone. The new has come. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father but through him. Is that exclusive? Yes. Gloriously exclusive. And yet gloriously inclusive in this sense that this exclusive sacrifice opens the door wide open that if anyone, anyone, no matter what you've done or where you've been, no matter what your past is or how long it's been, if anyone says, I believe that Jesus is alive, I believe he rose from the dead, I believe he's my savior, I believe I'm a sinner, then that man or woman can become a new creature in Christ and can be forgiven. So the exclusivity of Christ opens the door for the inclusivity of sinners to come to him. And so if you're a sinner, come to him. Don't wait another moment. Come to him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, thank him every day of your life that he exclusively paid the debt that you owed so that you could be forgiven. Jesus is the only way. Lord Jesus, thank you that in the intersection between the justice of God and our justification, you entered into that space in order that we might be forgiven. And now, Lord, help us to be the kind of people who live in that grace and in that reality such that we're willing to forgive others. We desire to consider other people as more important than ourselves. 
We'd show lots of grace to hurting people. And we'd believe that when we stare death and pain in the face that we know this is not over, that Jesus really was raised from the dead, he really is alive, he's really coming back, and one day everything wrong is gonna be made right. And then, Lord, for those today who are here and not yet a follower of Jesus, oh, that you might draw them. Let the burning reality that they feel in their heart draw them, draw them even now to believe in Jesus, to cross the line, to confess Christ as Lord, to believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead and that they might be saved. Oh, Lord, we pray this. In the name of Jesus, our King, amen.